good morning. Y'all doing well this morning? Good. I love this national holiday of Super Bowl Sunday, so who's excited for the game today? Let's just face it, we're all winners because the Patriots aren't playing. So we'll get that out of the way right now. So there's a lot to celebrate besides Jesus today, and that's the Patriots are out of the playoffs. So uh, my name is David Diener. I'm the high school pastor here at Bachelor Creek, uh, and I'm thrilled uh, to be before you guys this morning. Uh, if you haven't been here, we're in our series called Your Kingdom Come, looking at the Lord's Prayer uh, and looking at it in-depthly. And I get today to talk about uh, the title of the series, Your Kingdom Come, Your Will Be Done on Earth as it is in Heaven. Uh, I'm not sure why I'm preaching this, to be honest with you. Uh, one, it's the title of the series. I would think, you know, the big kahuna would want to be up here. But, you know, if you want the B team, I'm here. I'm ready to go. Uh, but also... I, I also think this is the hardest part of the prayer. Like if we look at the whole prayer saying your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven is really easy to say but really hard to do. Because I'm, I'm convinced that the one thing humans like more than anything else on earth is control. Right? We want the outcomes that we want. We want to earn the money that we want. We want the promotions that we want. We want to date the girl that we want. There are so many things we want in life, and we want to control things. We want things to happen exactly like we want it, right? We all want this. I mean, that's, it is what it is. It's just the fact of life. We love control. But sometimes you're not in control when you want to be, right? I remember the first time I went on a date uh, with my now wife, Danielle. Uh, we dated in junior high, but that was as much dating as junior hires actually date. Uh, so we were back together the summer before our junior year of high school, and we were going to go to movies in Marion, go to Applebee's, and of course, being the, the hunk of a date that I was, uh, we went to go see The Notebook, uh, which, exactly. The movie was terrible, but the hand-holding was amazing. <laughs> Man, it was awesome. So we saw the movie, uh, and then we went to Applebee's afterwards, and I'm really nervous, uh, really, really nervous. And so I, I was, I remember, I don't remember what we ate or anything like that, but I remember I got this like strawberry freckled lemonade thing. I don't know if they still have it, uh, but I was so nervous, like I plowed through those lemonades, man. Any awkward silence, so I'll just take a drink, right? We've all been in awkward situations, whatever you can do to get out of the awkwardness. So I would drink, I probably had like six freckled lemonades. Because you know, most restaurants, they give you like a glass that's like that big with more ice than there is actual liquid. So I was just, I was going through them. The whole time, Daniel's like, are you sure those things are free? And I'm like, of course. I'm the man. I know everything. These are free. So we get to the end of the day. It went, it went, it went well. Um, and then we get the bill. And uh, the drinks aren't free. <laughs> that was the first moment I realized my wife was always right. So all of a sudden, I drank like $25 worth of lemonades. And I go to pay for said bill, and I don't have enough money to pay for said bill because I bought $25 worth of lemonade. So I'm starting to panic. She doesn't know it at this moment what's happening. I'm looking at my wallet. For some reason, my parents didn't trust me with a credit card or debit card at this point. I was a very responsible teenage boy. Uh, I don't understand the reasoning, but so be it. So I'm moneyless. I've got this beautiful date, and I don't know what I'm going to do. So I, the only thing I could think of was I gave Danielle the keys, and I said, Go look out in the car, see if you can scrounge any change you can find in the car. <laughs> Under the seats, in the cushions, in the, I don't, I just find money. We needed, we were only like five bucks short. 
surely I, I'm a teenage boy's car is not clean, therefore surely there's money somewhere in there, right? So she walks back in, and she has this look on her face. I'm like, oh, she must not have found the money. So she sits down and said, um, we now have two problems. <laughs> At this point, I'm a little curious. I'm like, uh, okay. Well, the first problem is uh, we still don't have any money. The second problem is the keys are locked in the car. <laughs> I'm like, okay, okay. Um, side note, this would not be the first time we had locked ourselves out of a car in a date in some strange city, for the record. But. So I'm like, okay, uh, one problem at a time. So I do one of the hardest things I've ever done in life. I go to the table next to us, and I ask them for money because I just spent $25 in lemonade. I didn't tell them the lemonade part. My favorite thing was when Danielle was out in the car getting, looking for change and locking the keys in the car, the waitress went around asking if I wanted more lemonade. Definitely no. <laughs> Definitely no. Like, I'm not sure how I'm going to pay what I already drank, but whatever. So I asked some nice couple for money, and thankfully they gave us a little bit of money, and we, we paid for the rest of our bill. And I still, every time I go back to Applebee's, I still look for our waitress because we only gave her like a 42-cent tip on like a $50 bill. I felt so, I don't remember her name, but I will never forget that face. Because I even told her, I'm so sorry, but we ran out of money. Here's 42 cents. But so we get outside, and I realize quickly, uh, oh, wait, we do have an extra key. We have a hide-a-key, right? You know, the old magnetic things, and you can hide under the key. So the problem is it's December, and there's like six inches of snow, I swear, and eight feet deep puddles under my car. So I'm crawling under this car, and did my parents put the, the key, you know, just right under the, no, no. I swear I was like under the muffler, in the carburetor, looking everywhere. I'm soaked at this point. I'm like, Danielle, we're going home, and I'm taking you home, and then I'm going home and shower. It was, it was a moment when I realized as much as we want to be in control, you're never really in control, are you? Like we love to control situations. We love the things to go our way, but the fact is they don't. So today we're going to look at what this prayer means, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And I think at its core, this verse simply means being willing to give up control. Giving up your control of your life, who you are, everything you strive to be and everything you want to do, simply saying, I am releasing my control. God, may it be about you for the rest of my life. And like I said, this is an easy prayer to pray. God, your kingdom come, your will be done. It's a lot harder prayer to actually live out. And we see this over and over again in Scripture. So today we're going to start in the New Testament by comparing two interactions Jesus had with a couple people. So we're going to start in Luke chapter 18. So if you have your Bibles, open up to Luke chapter 18. And if you need a Bible, there's one in front of you. It will not be up on the screens this morning. This passage, some of it will be later. But Luke chapter 18, we see this interaction with Jesus, which the Scripture calls the rich young ruler. Luke chapter 18 starting in verse 18. So Luke 18, 18. Here's what it says. A certain ruler asked him, him being Jesus, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good, Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. Honor your father and mothers. All these I have kept since I was a boy, he said. 
when Jesus heard this, he said to him, you still lack one thing. Sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasures in heaven. Then come, follow me. When he heard this, he became very sad because he was very wealthy. Jesus looked at him and said, how hard is it for, a rich, for the rich to enter the kingdom of God? Indeed, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. So right away, we see the man saying, good teacher, what must I do? And Jesus kind of rejects that notion about it being about being good, right? Right away, he notices the man thinks eternal life and salvation is based on behavior and being good. And so Jesus asks him about his behavior, and, Jesus, and the guy says, yes, of course, I followed all these rules. But in reality, Jesus wants him to realize one thing. It's not about behavior. It's not about your actions, but it's about submitting your whole life to the kingdom of God. It's easy to do one or two good things, but do you submit your whole life? And Jesus simply asks him to do that. Give up control of your wealth. It's not about just a few actions here, but give up control. And as it says, the man walked away sad. He could not give up control. So let's compare that story to one just one chapter later. I think it's really important that we notice these two stories are back-to-back. So Luke chapter 19 Verse 2, we find a very similar situation, a wealthy man encountering Jesus, wanting to know more. So Luke chapter 19, verse 2, a man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him, since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said, Zacchaeus, Come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter, He has gone to the house of a guest of a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because this man too is the son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save what is lost. So here, we find another man, also very wealthy, very curious about Jesus. And so he has this interaction with Jesus. We don't really know what is said in Zacchaeus' house, but we know Zacchaeus decides to give half of what he has back to the poor and give four times the amount to people who have cheated. He's willing to give up that control. Whatever Jesus says, it convinces him, you've got to give up control to really follow me. It's not about the money but it's about control in Jesus. So we have two men, same story, two very different outcomes. And many people do make this about money and material possessions, but it's not. It's simply about control. What controls your life? I think the problem really is there are a lot of us, a lot of us people in this room who are, think we are a lot like the rich young ruler. We're good. We do the right things. We say the right things, but have you actually given up control of your life for Jesus? Who actually controls your life? We justify it by making it more about a behavior than a relationship that we submit to our king. There's a book called Do Hard Things by Alex and Brett Harris. And they have a fascinating chapter that's it's, it's phrased like the behavior of don'ts. And Christians so often categorize themselves as good people because of this behavior of don'ts. Like, right, I don't do drugs. 
I don't have sex out of marriage. I don't steal from people. I don't cuss. I don't lie. We live in this mindset, well, I don't do all those things, therefore I am a follower of Jesus. Jesus doesn't care about what you don't do, right? Jesus cares about what you do. Are you actually submitting your life to him? Are you allowing him to be the king of your life above all other things? Or are you stuck in the behavior of do's and don'ts? Then we have Zacchaeus who realizes his need for a savior and simply submits his whole life to the kingdom of God. Can we go back to preschool real quick? Is that okay? Did anybody go to preschool or church or anything when you were young kids? Good. One of you raised your hand. All right. So Zacchaeus is so cool, he has a song. Does anybody know the song? You guys know the song? All right. So help me out. Zacchaeus was a, and a, was he, he, sycamore tree, the Lord he wanted to see. Very well. Good job. Here's the thing I want us to learn from that. I love this word picture of Zacchaeus being short and needing to climb this tree because I think that's what made the difference for Zacchaeus. He realized one thing. He needed to see Jesus, and the crowd was getting in the way. So he climbed a tree so he could simply see Jesus. I think a lot of us are stuck in the crowd. A lot of us are stuck, and we can't really see Jesus for who he is. We're stuck listening to the voices of people telling us who we should be and what we should be doing, reaching the Joneses, making more money, getting that promotion, doing whatever you have to do to get the girl. Whatever it is, we're stuck being blinded by the crowd, and some of us need to start climbing a tree so we can see Jesus for who he is. I love a quote by a guy named Stephen Kendrick. It says this, there's almost every sinful action committed can be traced back to a selfish motive. It is a trait we hate in other people, but justify in ourselves. Does anybody here love selfish people? I didn't think so. It's easy to dog and hate and complain about people are being selfish, but it's really easy to justify it when we're selfish, aren't we? Like, we deserve this. I've had a hard week. Uh, I've just got a lot of hard things going on in my life. It's okay. I need this money. I need this. It's really easy to justify the selfishness in our life. It's really easy to complain about other people's selfishness. I think we see this played out even in Jeremiah, in the Old Testament, the book of Jeremiah. We see the same control, the same selfishness in the Israelites. So let's go to Jeremiah chapter 29 real quick. This is in your bulletin. It will be up on your slides as well. Jeremiah chapter 29. We're going to start reading in verse 4. So Jeremiah was a prophet to God's chosen people, the Israelites. The problem was Israelites were disobeying God a lot. They had created false idols. They were worshiping other gods. They simply were not submitting to God's kingdom, and they were seeking their own desires and their own control for the life. This was a real pivotal moment, this letter that Jeremiah writes to Israelites. Verses 1 through 3 are on your bulletin, but basically all it is is a bunch of names you and I cannot pronounce. And all it basically is saying, that's this letter that Jeremiah writes. Jeremiah is in Jerusalem, and the Israelites are in exile. He basically is telling who this letter is supposed to go to. And the people and the names that are really complicated basically represent the people of power, the people of position, the people of influence, the people of the Israelites. This is who he sent it to. So we're going to start in verse 4. Jeremiah 29, verse 4. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. 
Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. Also seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Yes, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says. Do not let the prophets and the diviners among you deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams you encourage them to have. They are prophesying lies to you in my name. I have not sent them, declares the Lord. So here we find the Israelite people are caught up, as it says at the end, listening to uh, the other prophets, prophets uh, and people telling them things. And what they're telling them basically is, I know we're in exile now, but it will not last long. We'll be out of here in no time, not a big deal. We dealt with our sin. We'll be washed clean from this. And Jeremiah says, hold on. You can't listen to those people. You're going to be here a while. You're going to be here so long, you better start planting some gardens. You better start planting some houses. Build some houses. Let your kids marry. Have babies. You're going to be here a while. Your sin has consequences, and you are going to be here a while. And I think it's really interesting that God tells him that if you want to prosper, the city must prosper. Because they're right next to the city of Babylon, and he's saying, if you want things to go well for you, you better make sure it goes well for Babylon as well. I think, he's, I think it's really an important point to notice because the Israelites are in a rough spot, right? Nobody wants to be in exile. Nobody wants to be wandering away from their homeland. But I think God is telling them, you need to take advantage of the space and the time that you're at. Like, as Christians, as followers of Jesus, we need to make sure that the people we're around, no matter how bad our circumstances in, no matter how big of a mess we're in, we need to make sure other people around us are benefiting from us. We need to make sure the people around us are better because of our faith. We cannot just simply take our hard circumstances and our hard choices and take them as an opportunity to be selfish. We still should be building up others. Um, one of the things I, I'm really guilty of, I'm going to confess something to you. Um, I'm on Facebook probably more than I should. I justify it by saying it's my job since I do social media here. But uh, there are these clickbait things. Have you ever seen them like the 10 most fascinating pictures from nature or look at these amazing photos from the circus or you have you guys ever seen these before like I'm a sucker okay I just click on those things almost every time so there's this one fascinating one about plants growing in weird places and I thought it was so cool I want to show it to you is that okay okay let's see some of the pictures all right this is the first one an old abandoned abandoned ferris wheel with plants and stuff growing up I think it's really cool I think it'd be really creepy to look at at night but really cool standing from here looking at a picture all right, I, love, I think this one's cool. This is a cave in uh, Cambodia, I believe it said, where the roots have gone all down the mountainside. It's just really, really fascinating to look at, I think. It's really cool. All right, this one. I love this one. This tree was planted, and the roots have started, if you can see, have started taking the path of the brick because that's where it can get its nutrients is from the soil in between each of the bricks. Let's go to the next one. This one, I love this one. A boat with trees in it. How cool is that? I don't know, maybe I'm easily entertained, but, oh, the bike. Did anybody lose a bike? Is this anybody's bike? I don't know, thought I'd ask. But that's so awesome. And this one, the piano. Love the piano. So let me ask you a question. How many of you guys think those plants were purposely planted in those specific places around those caves, the sidewalks, the piano, the bike, all that? How many think they were actually planted there on purpose? Somebody may do that somewhere. But I guarantee most of these pictures were not put there on purpose. But what did they do? They grew. 
the places, the pictures I just showed you, would I have showed you pictures of that if those plants weren't there? No. But are those places better because those plants are there? Yes. Those plants were not supposed to be there. But yet they grew, they flourished, and they made everything around it better. And that's exactly like it's supposed to be for us. You may not be where you like it. You may not be where you thought you'd be 20 years ago. But you are where you are, and are you going to make the things and the people around you better? Because submitting to God's kingdom says, that's what I'm going to do. I'm not going to make it about me and wallow in self-pity and do what I want to do, but I'm going to make it about your kingdom and your will for my life. So let's keep reading. Jeremiah 29, verse 10. This is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. Then you will call on me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all of your heart. So here we find verse 10, right? They've been in exile. God tells them, settle down. You're going to be here a while. And the Lord finally says, in 70 years... I will come to Babylon, and I will rescue you. I will fulfill my promise. I will take you out of captivity. I will take you out of exile and take you back to Jerusalem. Seventy years. You, you want to know how many people reading this letter will actually survive those 70 years? Zero, right? Think about the life expectancy 2,000 years ago. It wasn't 70 like it is today or whatever it is. The people reading this letter literally will die before they see any of these promises. And honestly, a lot of their kids will even be dead. And so the funny thing is we go to Jeremiah 29, 11 a lot, right? For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope in a future. What we're really good is at going fishing and pulling out that verse, right? Look at this awesome verse. Look at the promises we have. Look at the hope and the prosperity and the wealth and the promises. Look at everything I have. The thing is, a lot of people have those as their life verses, I don't think they realize if that's your life verse, you're saying, God, I'm willing to be in exile and slavery for 70 years and die and never see any of my promises. Because we tend to do what we do. We make things about ourselves, right? Listen, the plans, the prosperity, the safety, the hope, and the future is not in you. It's in one person, and his name is Jesus. We make too many things about ourselves and what I'm going to get, what I'm going to receive, my hope, my future, my plans, and the only hope, the only future, the only prosperity any of us have is found in Jesus. But we're too busy making it about ourselves because that's what we want. We want control. We're selfish. We want what we want. Then 12 and 13 finally say, then you will call on me and pray to me and I will listen. Basically saying after the 70 years, you'll finally understand that when you seek me, you will find me. When you pray to me, I'll be right here and I will rescue you. It took 70 years for them to figure that out. Notice the difference? When they finally stop making it about themselves and start realizing, okay, maybe God is the one who saves us. Maybe God is my hope, my future. Then they're out of captivity. I think a lot of people get hung up. I've had a lot of conversations with people of the God of the Old Testament versus the God of the New Testament because it seems like he's very different God, right? In the Old Testament, there's a lot of judgment. There's a lot of wrath. There's a lot of destruction, right? But the New Testament, you don't see that as much. You see... Places like this where they're just left alone for seven years. God could have easily said, it's all right, I will save you. 
Come here, little boy. Let me help you. Come over here. But God just lets them sit in exile, people dying generation after generation simply because they will not pursue God. I think the difference is we fail to realize there is a lot of judgment and wrath and destruction on the people because of their sin in the Old Testament. But there's just as much destruction, just as much judgment, and just as much wrath. The difference is it's not on us, and it's on Jesus. There's just as much judgment, there's just as much wrath. The difference is Jesus took it all for all of us. So we have a chance at that grace, at that repentance, at that life, that hope, that prosperity. All these things, Jeremiah 29, 11, we find in Jesus. And we have because of Jesus, not because of us. It has nothing to do with you or me and everything to do with Jesus. The plan is Jesus. It always has been and it always will be. It's time for us to start praying and believing and living God's kingdom and his will to be done instead of, instead of our own. Why? Because of a student I met at Campus Life. I volunteer with Aaron, who leads Campus Life at Wabash High School, and I was talking to this kid. I said, hey man, how was your weekend? It was my first time talking to him. It was earlier this year. First time talking to him, he said, well, it actually wasn't very good. Uh, I spent uh, all weekend uh, in the hospital up in Fort Wayne. I was like, dude, what happened? He's like, well, uh, we, my parents were dog-sitting for some people, and the dog ended up having fleas. And so we put this stuff all over our carpet to get rid of the fleas so we didn't have it in our house, and I had an re allergic reaction to the flea medicine. And he kind of half-jokingly, what were you doing rolling on the, on the ground for? Like, that's, there were fleas, what were you doing? He's like, well, a while back, my, my parents played a practical joke and took the bed out of my room, and then they just decided to sell it, so I sleep on my floor now. And so we laid in that flea medicine all night and woke up like a balloon. You know what the plan is for him? Jesus. Well, there's one of my youngest friends from elementary school. We were best friends growing up. Even in the beginning of high school, we separated a little bit, got distant. He went somewhere to college. I went another where, somewhere else. He got into drugs and partying, eventually became a dealer. Eventually somebody didn't like that, came in and shot him. He lived, thankfully. But you know what the plan is for him? Jesus. Well, there's countless students I've sat across from who one of their parents is just deciding to leave. I don't even know who I am anymore. I feel like everything I've known is gone. You know what the plan for them is? Jesus. Well, there's another student at 19 after he graduated alcoholic, addicted to drugs. I finally was sitting across from him at one point, just what can I do to help? Finally, later in the conversation, I said, just start with getting the alcohol out of your house. Start there. He said, well, I tried that once. And then my uncle got so mad at me, he took me out in the front yard and beat me. You know what the plan for him is? Jesus. Well, there's just recently a student that we had in our ministry just this fall. Lived in Indianapolis with his mom, with her mom. Dad was out of the picture. Mom was sick. So finally, even though her mom begged her not to do it, she called an ambulance, got her some help, got her to the hospital. And finally, she was so sick, she got put on life support. And at 16 years old, with no other family, this young lady had to make the call to pull the plug on her mom. 
So she went in the foster care system, got into a great family here at Wabash, started getting plugged into our ministry. Man, God was doing some incredible things in her life. She really, it was, it was amazing to see and to witness and to be able to pray over her. And one, we were on a retreat one time, I anointed her with oil and just prayed over the demons and the things that she had in her life. About six weeks ago, she ran away and hasn't been heard of since. You know what the plan is for her? Jesus. And then there's me. Who so often can't think about anybody else but myself. Sacrifice my kids, my wife, so many other things for my wants and my desires. I want to be the best. I want to be first. No matter who I walk on. The plan for me is Jesus. Church, the plan for you is Jesus. You have hope. You have a future. You have life. It's only found in Jesus. But are you going to be willing to actually live out this prayer? Instead of just saying the words, instead of just saying, God, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, are you going to be actually willing to live it out? Because these people need you. Because we have people walking in the halls of our church today with stories like this. In our high schools with stories like this. You have people walking into the places of business where you work with stories like this. And they need Jesus. And who's going to bring it to them? Because if we're stuck on our own desires, our own wants, and our own agenda, they will never find Jesus. Somebody has to step up and do it. Why not us? Why not you? The kingdom of God needs you to start living for it instead of yourself. And I'm preaching to myself here, church. So why Jesus? He gave everything for you. That we could find that we could forever have a relationship with him. In the midst of our sin, in the midst of our mess, in the midst of the destruction of our life, we need Jesus and Jesus alone. In a few moments, we're going to take communion. Think about that deliverance Jesus has given to us by what he did on the cross. You need Jesus, I need Jesus. The people we encounter every day need Jesus. Let's take a few moments and just think about that. The price that he willingly went to the cross for you and for me. Jeremiah 29, 11 talks a lot about prosperity, hope, plans, future. Came true on the cross for all of us. As I was uh, prepping for the sermon this week, I was thinking through a big, an anthem for my life right now is a song called King of My Heart. It just, it, it speaks right into this. As soon as they told me kind of what the topic was, I knew, man, that song is perfect for this. But it was kind of late notice that all this happened, 
And so, like, Wednesday night I was working on this. I was like, man, I really want to play King of My Heart after we do communion this morning. I was like, I also know the worship team practice plays practice tomorrow, and I know they're prepped. I just, I'm not going to even ask Michael because I know it's too late. They were singing the first song, first hour, and I went to go look at the order of service. What song do you think we're going to sing after communion today? And as we sing that song this morning, think about the words. Sing with everything you've got. May the king of my heart, God, may be about your kingdom and not my own because, God, you are good. You are good. If you've never given your life to Jesus, no time like now. I would love to invite you to the back porch. I would love to pray for you. If you just need prayer, if you've been in kind of in the stuck of rut of life, where, yeah, I gave my life to Christ, but I've, I've just, I find myself fading back to my own desires and my own wants, I would love to pray for you too. Don't waste a morning like this morning. God, we thank you for Jesus. My God, I thank you for being the king of my heart. My God, I'm sorry for my faults and my failures and my sin. And the times I choose to put other things as the king of my life. But God, may we as a church strive to seek your kingdom, your will, and your desires for us. Not our own, not what other people say, not what the crowd says. God, may your desire and your will and your kingdom reign supreme in us. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the cross. It's in your name I pray.